I also want to report to you that as a result of our continuing work in the Northview Heights neighborhood, not only among long-term residents, but many of the refugee residents, this past week saw two Muslim women profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we look at God's Word, I need to acknowledge some special guests in the house. I didn't know they were coming today. Pastor Ron Morrison and his lovely wife, Anita, from our sister church in Cleveland are here. Ron generally ministers to us once or twice a year. They're right here in the front row. Please give them a warm welcome. And I'm always encouraged when they visit because the size of the offering doubles anytime they're here. Today we're going to continue our year-long study of the New Testament book of Acts. It's the story of people just like us who were coming to grips with all of the implications of the eternity that God had placed within their hearts. And even though the book of Acts was written in the first century, it still speaks powerfully to those of us living in the 21st century because every generation of believers faces the same fundamental challenges, fundamental concerns, and fundamental temptations. And today's text is a prime example of that. We're not going to get to it for a few moments. I need to set it up. It's a text that addresses a problem that touches all of us every day. It touches us outside the walls of the church and inside the walls of the church. Outside, our society is watching the beauty, the beauty, excuse me, of community give way to the ugliness of competition. Our culture is plagued by deep divisions, ethnic, economic, political, religious, and cultural divisions. Divisions that are reinforced by identity, politics, and special interest groups. These rifts in our society flourish in the soil of human sin, where they take root in human pride, human fear, human greed, and human insecurity and self-interest. And these divisions are often unwittingly nurtured by a seemingly innocent and often unconscious an unintentional habit. The habit of limiting our relationships to people who are just like us. The people with whom we feel a cultural affinity and a cultural bond. And despite its rather harmless appearance, that habit has far-reaching destructive consequences. In our society at large, it fuels and sustains a whole multitude of evils and injustices. And when it's indulged inside the church, and both scripture and history tells us it often is indulged inside the church, there it creates what I like to call gaps in our holiness. Let me explain what I mean by that, because that's going to be our focus today, those gaps in our holiness. When we limit our relationships to people who are just like us, it inevitably leads to gaps, to deficiencies in our relationships. 
They're far too limited, far too narrow, far too incomplete for a people who have been called to show the authenticity of their message by the way that they love one another. Once relational gaps are established, they lead to gaps in our awareness. It's inevitable. People unlike us because we don't have contact with them become virtually invisible to us. We rarely think about them. They become the background against which we live our lives. Once there is a gap in our awareness, that leads to an inevitable gap in our understanding. And because we don't like gaps, we tend to backfill those gaps with fiction and with stereotypes rather than facts. And that, in turn, creates an inevitable gap in our compassion. We become oblivious to things that we ought to address, things that ought to deeply concern us, and by so doing, we become unwittingly complicit in their continuation. And that leads to a gap in our holiness. It limits our spiritual recovery. It limits our ability to glorify God, to show the world what he's really like, and it limits our capacity to minister and speak with integrity to a fractured world. That's where today's text from the book of Acts can help us because it illustrates that relational gaps can flourish within the church, but they can also be addressed with recognition and humility and intentional change. Our text is Acts chapter 6, the first five verses. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenist Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. But select from among you brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And we subsequently read that the church continued to grow. I've entitled today's teaching, Closing the Gap. And I've been asked at least six or seven times, is that me in that picture? (laughs) No, honey, I'm not going there. I would break in half if I tried to do that. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, enable me to do what I could never do on my own, to faithfully, prophetically proclaim your truth. And by your Spirit, help us to do what we could never do on our own. Understand it and apply it in faith. As always, we pray this simple request because we care about the reputation of God in our midst. We care about the welfare of God's people. And we care about the mission God has given to us. We pray these things with confidence and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's word together today, may the Lord be with you. Have you noticed that 
we human beings are spectacularly inconsistent. I mean, even in our best moments, our worst is never far from us. And we can go from our best to our worst in a nanosecond. If you're married, you know that's true. <laughs> and sometimes our best and worst often walk hand in hand. For example, a man marching on behalf of the dignity of women may at the same time be mentally undressing the woman next to him. His best and his worst, hand in hand. A woman advocating for corporate ethics may at the same time be misreporting her income on her tax return. And inconsistencies like that don't stop at the church door. Many an automobile has been transformed into a virtual war zone on the way home from church while Caleb is playing on the radio. <laughs> and if you've got children, you know that. A man on his knees in prayer can find his thoughts about God suddenly interrupted by pornographic images. Our best and our worst often hand in hand. You see, the reason why that is so is because there's often a gap between the ideals we cherish and the actions that flow out of those ideals. And as unfair as it may sound at first hearing, I'd like to suggest that that gap is generally greatest among those who are following Jesus. Now, here's why I say that. I'm not suggesting we're more prone to inconsistency. We aren't. I'm not suggesting we're more prone to hypocrisy. We aren't. Hypocrisy flourishes everywhere. What I am suggesting is the ideals that we cherish are so incredibly challenging that falling short of them in action is a veritable foregone conclusion. After all, we're not called to be like everybody else. We're not called to be above average. We're called to be like Jesus. And when that's the ideal, you and I are going to fall short. So little surprise that the early church in Jerusalem, despite incredible boldness, incredible power, incredible witness, and incredible growth, still had its blind spots and struggles. And since Scripture is nothing if it's not an honest read, the Holy Spirit didn't hide those struggles. The Holy Spirit highlighted those struggles so that you and I could look in the mirror and learn from both the mistakes and the adjustments of our predecessors. As we saw earlier in our study of the book of Acts, back in chapter 2, one of the marks of that early church was incredible generosity. Unheard of generosity. Everyone sold their possessions, contributed the money to a common pot so that none among them had need. Incredible generosity. And that kind of generosity was not the product of emotional manipulation, empty promises, or fundraising techniques. It was the result of good theology. They had learned that Jesus had made them one. And once they grasped that, they understood my brother's need is my need. My sister's need is my need because we are one.
people. We are one body. So they were very successful in the matter of generosity. But in the midst of their success, they learned a valuable lesson. Satan always attacks the church's strengths because he doesn't need to attack its weaknesses. In their case, he found a gap. It was a gap in their otherwise exemplary generosity. It was a relational gap, and it threatened their unity, that threatened their credibility, and that threatened their witness and their growth. Now, to understand the gap, you have to understand the cultural context. There were two types of Jews in the first century church in Jerusalem. One group descended from ancestors who had returned to Jerusalem many generations earlier under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra. You can read all about that in the Old Testament. And while they were in exile, they remained true to their Hebrew underpinnings. They remained true to their culture, to their faith, and to their language. The second group descended from Jews who had returned from the Babylonian captivity. Now, that was a lengthy captivity, long enough that most of them had lost their fluency in Hebrew and replaced it with fluency in Greek. Many of them didn't speak Hebrew at all. And they have been greatly influenced by Greek culture. The first group were known as Hebrews. The second group were known as Hellenists. And the first group was rather suspicious of the second group. They saw them as having sold out a bit. And they felt intrinsically superior to them. Now, in the midst of that, there was a damaging relational gap in that otherwise vibrant church. And the issue wasn't ethnicity. They were all Jews. The issue wasn't faith. They were all followers of Jesus. The issue was both groups had limited their relationships to people just like themselves. The leadership of that church was almost entirely Hebrew. They knew their widows. They could communicate with their widows. They could make informed decisions about their widows. But their connections with their Hellenist brothers and sisters were virtually non-existent. No wonder the Hellenist widows were overlooked. Now, the manner in which this issue was addressed makes it clear that the gap was not, un was not intentional. It wasn't an example of overt evil. Many times, relational gaps are not the result of overt evil. They're just innocent oversights. Because as this matter was addressed, you'll notice nobody was accused of sin or rebellion against God. Nobody was called to a place of repentance before God. But there was the need for a righteous recognition and for a righteous response. There was a need for humility. There was a need for sensitivity. There was a need for intentional action. And there was a need for change, substantive change. Here's why. The lack of evil intent doesn't prevent evil consequences. You may be innocent of overt evil, but still damage another human being by your lack of awareness. For example, if you're on the parkway, and the person next to you sideswipes your automobile while they're texting, 
the fact that they didn't intend to strike your automobile doesn't mean you drive away without damage, does it? They were innocent of ill intent, but you still have damage to your automobile. Innocence doesn't translate into a lack of damage. So while the text doesn't imply overt evil or animosity, the fact remained the Hellenist widows were overlooked, they were on the short end of the stick, and they were hungry. And in the face of that unacceptable inequity, I want you to notice what they didn't do. They didn't suffer in stoic silence. Stiff upper lip. They didn't consider it all joy. They didn't thank God for the chance for character development. And they didn't pray for greater patience. They voiced their complaint. They spoke up. Because silence isn't appropriate in the presence of injustice. Never. You read scripture, when God sees an injustice, is he silent about it or does he speak to it? He always speaks to it. And so do his people. You know what Jeremiah said? Jeremiah said, here's one way you can tell you know God by the way you plead for the cause of the needy. You make your voice heard. See, injustice robs God of his glory. Injustice robs lost humanity of their opportunity. So the Hellenists spoke up. I had flirted with the idea of making that my title. The Hellenists spoke up. And when they did, I want you to know what the apostles didn't do. They didn't accuse them of whining. They didn't suggest that they suffered from an entitlement mentality. They didn't say to the Hellenist men, well, there's lots of good jobs. Get a job and feed your widows. Take care of your own. Because they understood they were one in Christ. And in the body of Christ, take care of your own is the language of ignorance. So they sprang into action. The Holy Spirit used the Hellenist complaint to say to the church, there's a gap and you need to close it. So rather than getting defensive, they put their egos up on the shelf and they began to work on a godly response because defensiveness perpetuates the gaps in our devotion. Let me say that again. Defensiveness will perpetuate the gaps in your devotion to God. When we hear the complaints of a cultural group other than our own, all of us are prone to a knee-jerk, defensive response. It's not my fault. I didn't create this. I'm not in favor of it. I'm not guilty of it. But defensive responses are a fool's errand. Because in a defensive response, you waste all the energy God has given you that could be used for learning and problem solving, you use it just to defend your backside. And you waste your time and you lose your opportunity to grow. 
You see, love for God calls for honest recognition of injustice and an honest response to injustice. When our fellow believers identify an injustice, we must understand their complaint isn't a power play, it's not pathetic whining, it's not a political ploy, it is a prophetic act because it is pointing out our deficiency, a deficiency that robs our holiness, robs God of his glory, and robs people of their opportunity. When people speak up about injustice, they are nudging the body of Christ towards holiness. Those who believe God and love God must speak up about injustice, and those who believe God and love God must hear their complaint with humility and refuse the all-too-defensive path of discrediting the messenger, denying the validity of the complaint, or denying any complicity in the matter. And how often do we see that? Oh, he's pointing it out, but he's a scumbucket. He may be a scumbucket, but if his point is valid and you're God's person, honey, you better hear it. Or denying the validity of the complaint. Nah, those Hellenist widows aren't really hungry. You just can't ever please a Hellenist widow. How much is enough in their community? It's always a little more than they presently have. Just, just ignore them. Or well, but I didn't have anything to do with creating that. Well, if you weren't aware, weren't aware you did have something to do with sustaining it. See, so you may not have created it, but if you overlook it and don't respond to it, you are contributing to the continuance of it. The simple fact that we ought to remember when we're prone to be defensive is that those who insist on being right will always struggle to be righteous. Because the need to be right is little more than pride, fear, and insecurity masquerading as wisdom. And God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, God's on record. The kind of people who experience his transforming work are those who are of a broken and contrite heart. And if you're always right, you're never broken. If you're always right, you'll never be contrite. Because to be contrite is to recognize your brokenness and feel godly sorrow about it. See, even God can't teach the person who's convinced they're always right. And that insistence will create gaps in your holiness. To understand the apostles' response, we have to understand the phrase, serve tables. They said, it wouldn't be wise for us to neglect the word to serve tables. Now, they weren't suggesting that they were opposed to moonlighting by waiting on tables at TGI Fridays wasn't that kind of serving tables. And, and they weren't suggesting that the benevolence ministry of feeding the hungry was beneath them, far from it. The term serve tables wasn't referring to dining tables, it was referring to the offering tables, where the believers placed their offerings. And the apostles up until this point of time were in charge of those offerings of making sure they were used appropriately and assigning them to various benevolent ministries. 
But you see, the church had been growing with explosive growth. And as the church grew, the apostles' responsibilities became too broad and their relationships became too narrow. And they couldn't manage finances, minority group benevolence, and the ministry of the word all at once. It was just too much. So they did a very wise thing. They appointed others to oversee what they had neglected so that they wouldn't neglect the thing they needed to oversee. And the thing they needed to oversee was the word because they knew God's word is the indispensable foundation for closing the gaps in our holiness. See, the key to closing gaps, wherever they exist among human beings, is the eternal living word of God. Because it equips us to resist the temptations that limit our relationships and limit our compassion. The Word offers workable solutions to the challenges that we face. The Word shines God's divine light on the demonic lies that divide us from God, from one another, and from our authentic selves. If we are to be all that God wants us to be, if we are to do all that God wants us to do, we have to allow God's word to inform our minds, monitor our emotions, shape our decisions, chastise our stereotypes, and guide our relationships. The word has to be faithfully proclaimed. It has to be taught without apology. It has to be explained so it can be translated into everyday experience. The word can't be pushed aside in favor of entertainment, humorous stories, endless personal anecdotes, psychological reflections, and political diatribes. The word of God can't be replaced by social action because it instigates, informs, and empowers social actions. The apostle didn't prioritize the ministry of the word because they loved to preach. They prioritized the ministry of the word because they loved God and they loved people and they loved justice and they knew apart from the word, you're not going to have any of those things in the fullness of measure. Everything in God's house begins with God's word. Where people are ignorant of the word, they'll be ignorant of their own sin. Where they're knowledgeable in the word, they'll know their sin, they'll address their sin, they'll solve their sin, and they'll minister powerfully for Christ. That's why we focus on word, not entertainment. You can draw a crowd with entertainment, but you can't lead them into heaven. See, this is a gathering for people who love God, not a people looking to be entertained. So the apostles solved the gaps. They appointed seven godly men to oversee distribution in what I like to see as the first example of biblical affirmative action in the New Testament. Because when you read the names of the men they selected, they were all Hellenists, Greek speakers. Guys who would know their own widows, could communicate with their own widows, and make informed decisions about their widows. Did that mean there were no godly men full of the spirit and wisdom in the Hebrew community? No, it meant they needed some from the Hellenist community if they were going to close the gap. I remember years ago, we were advertising for a position. 
And we're very intentional about diversity in our leadership, in our staff. And I didn't know any better. I was trained to pastor, I, I, not all the legalities of HR. So, so I put out on the internet, I'm looking for an African-American pastor to do such and so. Well, I, I had a, a white fella chastise me, was accusing me of reverse racism. I, I love that. So I wrote back to him and I said, what do you do with this account from the book of Acts? Because it was intentional. And what do you do with the fact that Jesus only selected Jews for his first 12, even though he said of the Gentile world that there were people there with a faith unlike anything he had found? among the Jewish people. I said, if Jesus was intentional and the apostles were intentional, you'll get no apology from me about being intentional. Then my HR people said, in the future, just put minorities encouraged to apply. <laughs> Duh. See, all it took was a little awareness, a little honesty, a little humility, a little intentionality, a little cultural sensitivity, and the problem that threatened the unity, reputation, and the witness of the church solved. And the number of believers increased. See, Acts 6 chronicles a problem that's still very much with us, relational gaps hanging with our own kind. But there's a solution to that problem, and the early church found it. But I'd like to suggest they found it because they were humble enough to hear it and committed enough to do something about it. Humble enough to hear it. Lord, that's me. And committed enough to do something about it. I must change. And considering their success, here's what I'd like to suggest. If we pay attention to the Word of God and the people around us and the Spirit within us, we will come to recognize the gaps in our holiness. Quote, I didn't know, end quote, is not an enduring excuse for the people of God. I like to put it this way. If you own and read a Bible participate in church community and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, there is a statute of limitations on ignorance. The only way you can remain ignorant of injustice around you if you're reading the Bible, worshiping with fellow believers and following the Spirit is because you want to be ignorant of those injustices because doing something about them might require you to change. You imagine standing before Jesus, Jesus, I didn't know. Well, let's get out your Bible. I think it was in March of 2017, your pastor. But Lord, I was checking my cell phone. Jesus would say, you should have checked yourself before you wrecked yourself. Okay. You and I as believers can't control the events in our increasingly fractured culture, but we can influence the people who are being devastated by them. But influence happens when the church offers an alternative rather than an echo.
when we look differently, when we think differently, when we speak differently, when we act differently. So in closing, here's my unwritten or written but unofficial summary of Acts 6. If we want the world to believe in Jesus, we must close the gap between ourselves and brothers and sisters who aren't like us. Because Jesus only gave the unbelieving one benchmark whereby to judge our validity. He said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, by the way that you love one another. And when America's churches look like culture clubs at prayer, white church, black church, Asian church, Republican church, Democrat church, rich church, poor church, the world will never say, behold how they love one another. The world will say, they look just like us. And if they look just like us, why do I need to get up on Sunday morning to join them? But when we look differently, God can say, this is my intent, and you need to get in on it. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, by nature we are inconsistent, defensive, proud, and fearful of that which we don't know. And Lord, if we were all the same color, the same weight, the same height, with the same colored eyes, same hair, we'd find some reason to divide ourselves one from the other. That's our insecurity. And that creates gaps in our holiness. Give us eyes to see, hearts to respond, that we might give the world an alternative rather than an echo. In Jesus' name, amen.